1: plus.
0: That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. podcast. I have to say when I started out, well, two things. Firstly, I d- I'm not sure I thought I'd get to 100. I mean, after all, there are only 12 faulty towers. But uh, second, I didn't think I'd be recording the 100th episode essentially locked down in a police state, which is what I am. And also, that I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. I mean, we all know why. We all know what's been happening. Um, This wasn't quite the 100th spectacle I had planned, but I'm very happy to be doing it. And once again, I'm joined from the Republic of Ireland by Michael McMullen. Are you locked down over there or or just just locked in?
3: Not not really. I mean, you know, it's it's all a bit vague uh, what's going on here. There were new regulations issued by the government yesterday. Uh, But again, much like yourselves, we're a little unclear. The, The one advantage we have, of course, is that whereas your prime minister is basically an opinion columnist, Uh, Our prime minister is a is a GP, so I think we're 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 well equipped from from that point of view. But uh, yeah, it's all a bit unclear what's happening, but it's it's much the same mood in Ireland as it is over there. And just you mentioned you mentioned the faulty towers reference there. Mm. Fantastic to be here for the hundredth episode. It reminded me, of course. Uh, at the absolute depths of one of the worst WPBSI that we've had over the years, years. we actually had a ranking tournament played in a hotel in four back in 2003. (laughs) One of the great moments. It was actually, I mean, we're not here to talk about this
2: because we're here to celebrate the World Championship. It was actually one of the great finals. It wasn't televised, but Ronnie O'Sullivan beat Stephen Hendry and no one saw it other than the people in the room, but it was a a fantastic uh, match. But anyway, as I say, we thought, I mean, I had a big spectacular planned, which is not going to happen now, but uh, I thought it would make sense because, of course, we know that in the last week the World Championship has been Postponed. We hope, hopefully, only postponed, not cancelled. We'll see how things pan out. Um, to celebrate the World Championship, which of course, at this time of year, we would normally be looking forward to. And I was thinking back, like for as long as I can remember, April always meant the World Championship. You'd always get excited by it, either firstly for me as a fan, and then and started working in snooker. So I've asked for a few um, emails, and thanks so much for everyone who sent them in. We're not going to have time to read every one of them, but I will be going through a few of them during the podcast. And just generally. Um, celebrating the Crucible, celebrating the World Championship, and um, I guess looking forward, hopefully, to, to when it all returns. So I'll, I'll start, I guess. So it's actually 30 years now since I first went to the Crucible. The thing is, people maybe don't, don't sort of understand. Back then, you could actually get tickets pretty, pretty, you know, close to the event. They weren't absolutely all sold out. Um, and we got tickets, so I would only have been, what, 13, we got tickets, but um, for, 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 uh, this might explain why they, why they were available, it was John Virgo, Gary Wilkinson, no no, no disrespect to those two, but it may, maybe wasn't the standout time of the round. No.
1: Um,
2: no. And second session, um, I'd say Wilkinson would have been favourite, but Virgo was 7 to up overnight, we went to the second session. Um, I don't remember much about the match, there's no reason to, it wasn't wasn't much good, but, I had that thing that everyone has when you walk into the Crucible and you've only ever seen it on TV before and you just think, wow, it's small. You just, you kind of you have no perception watching on TV how small it is. And it, it took me, I would say about half an hour to actually stop just looking around the place and thinking, how can it be this
3: small? I still get that every single year when I go mm. back. It's You kind of forget just how small it is. Uh, but I mean, that's all part of the atmosphere of it. And the fact also that it's, It's it's a self-contained room at a lot of venues. You actually have the actual set and the arena, but it's within a much, much bigger hall, which I think takes away a little bit from the atmosphere. But it's inevitable in a lot of places. You don't have that in the crucible. The walls you see there are solid walls and it's it's just that room. And you were talking there about how much easier it was to get tickets in those days. think how cheap they were as well. I think they cost about three or four pounds for some of the first round matches. So what Mm. a different world we're in now
2: yeah i mean i watched not that i'm saying i've got time on my hands but i watched on youtube the other day um they've got the live first live program from the 1982 world championship so david vine is introducing tony Knowles versus steve davis which of course would be a match we we still talk about now because Knowles won 10-1 but um there were a couple of things about it firstly there was no um, rigmarole at all. It was very much, there's Viney, he's introducing it, let's get to the action, the players come out, they start. There was no sort of big build-up. But the second thing was, I noticed on that table, the first two rows were empty. There was one guy sat there, actually, and I know the guy's name, it was Ken Rennick, he used to go every year. Oh, yeah. Sadly, sadly, he's passed away since, but he was the only guy sat there. Whether people were just late or I don't know, but what I'm saying is, people have this sort of rose-tinted view of those days. They weren't. It wasn't always sold out every, every year. Um, they Of course, the ticket uh, thing has changed now because it used to go on sale in kind of January, but now obviously it goes on sale the day of the final for the next year. So there's a great demand for tickets, and that drives you know the the, the amount of tickets that, that, that they sell. So I guess you you would have been later going there. You never went as a spectator. I guess you went oh. as a journalist first time.
3: Yeah, first time I went there was 1998, and I remember walking in that stage door, which is still mm. where we go in now. So it probably would have been Jimmy Furlong, actually, on the front desk. I don't remember specifically, but I would have signed in, got my pass, and walked through the door. And I I sort of imagined, even when you got your pass, that every door you went through, there would probably be a sort of ring of steel that you'd have to get through, (laughs) and maybe explain your business and your purpose in going through this door. Well, as we know, it's the complete opposite of that. I think I actually went the wrong way and ended up just in the arena. And this was before (laughs) the play had started. But just there, you could just wander around it if you wanted to. The first person I saw, once I got past the front desk, was John Higgins walking yeah. around in a tracksuit, and uh, just the sheer ordinariness of it all really struck me straight away. And the thing was, it was quite early on actually in my career. It was only the third tournament I'd ever covered. I'd done a couple of Irish Masters prior to that, and that was big enough, as you know, Dave. You, you were there towards the end of uh, the Irish Masters being on. But then I walked in the press room at the Crucible. It was a much, much bigger deal. And then to actually go out into those press seats that are still now in exactly the same place and to sit down and watch the First session of Ken Doherty against Mark Williams, about 10 feet away from the table. You just can't take it all in when it it sort of felt at that time like I'd been watching the Crucible on television for a million years. In reality, it was probably only about 11 or 12 years prior to that. Uh, And now I've been there for, for well over the last 20 years. But yeah, there's nothing quite like that first time. And as you say, everyone had said that's the first thing you'll notice when you walk in is how small it is. Like I was saying, I still experience that every year because you just can't take it in uh, that such a massive sporting event, which just gets bigger and bigger all the time, is still played in what's essentially this really small room.
2: Yeah, it's strange. I liken it to the the Woody Allen film uh, Purple Rose of Cairo where Mia Farrow literally goes from the audience in the cinema into the film, and it's a bit like that because you've watched it all these years on TV. You have your sort of perception of it, and then you're you're in it. You're just sort of in it, and it's so different because obviously – when you watch watching on tv um it's quite a sort of um it's quite a subjective uh, sorry it's quite an objective um no, which, which is the word subjective view you're, you're watching the television's um pictures and they show you what they want to show you but when you're there yourself you know you can look at what you like and there's so much to kind of There's so much going on you can hear people's conversations because they're so close to the crowd a lot of people listening to this will have will have experienced this and i'll just um go to the emails because we've had as i say a lot of emails um, can't read them all out, but the um, first one is from Brian Murgatroyd. He said his first recollection is as an 11-year-old in 1979, the year Terry Griffiths beat Dennis Taylor in the final. So we're going quite a way back here. He said, I remember Dennis playing a few shots left-handed, which seemed incredible at the time, but it's laughable when you think of what Ronnie O'Sullivan does these days. He said, my abiding memory of that tournament was Terry's semi-final against Eddie Charlton, which, if memory serves me correctly, lasted until 3 a.m., Over the Easter school holidays, I used to stay up with my grandparents and they let me stay up to watch the snooker in the evenings as as they loved it as well. It was an incredible night. Who can forget Terry's interview with David Vine at the end of the match? I'm in the final now, you know. That was his uh, famous quote, of course. He said, being Welsh myself, I always had an affinity with Terry for a couple of years after his title, played some terrific snooker. He said, the pace of snooker in those days was far more sedate, of course, but I don't recall being stressed about it. It was enthralling stuff and helped foster my love for the sport, which has endured to this day. I think that's the thing. I think... You know, if you've sort of experienced that either at the crucible or just watching on TV, it, it does kind of stay with you, doesn't it? And have, I, I know we would maybe overdo nostalgia in snooker, but there is something special about the fact that all these memories happen in that one room, it's that one place where it's happened.
3: Yeah, I, yeah. I don't think it was quite 3am, but it was very late. I think it might have been just before 2am when it finished. And you mentioned Dennis there playing shots with his left hand. He was actually a pioneer, really, in, in that regard, because I certainly remember when I started watching snooker in the 80s, he was the only player I ever remember seeing do that, switching hands. Mm. So uh, remarkable to think that Terry won it in 79 at his first attempt. And that was at a time when players coming into the professional ranks were generally coming off the back of hugely successful amateur careers. It wasn't that much of a surprise uh, to see a new player coming in and doing so well. I mean, Steve was world champion within only three years, but remarkable to think that that was the only time he won it. That proved to be the high point of his career came right at the start of it. And of course, Steve denied him on so many occasions including the final in 1988 which Steve maintains he doesn't actually remember by the way <laughs> yeah, I'm, yes. I'm, not, I'm not quite sure about that especially considering I think Terry was best man at Steve's wedding so it seems hard to believe that he he doesn't remember something of playing him in a world final but but talking about not being stressed about it at the time now you and I aren't old enough to remember those early championships but a lot of people who are say that there was a feeling at the crucible in those early years that the result didn't really matter that much. It wasn't so much about who won and who lost. Now, obviously, it was to the players themselves. There was just such an air of celebration, particularly from people like Clive, who'd been around the sport a long time, mm-hmm. that it had just reached these heights and that in an event of this magnitude was happening. That was far more important, I think, than what the actual outcome was.
2: I think that's right. But I think it probably changed with Steve Davis. I think everything changed with Steve Davis because he, along obviously with Barry Herney's manager, they saw an opportunity to raise standards on the table by being more professional, you know, and, and he was ultra professional, but also obviously clean up off the table as well. That was the sort of the win double for them. And it and it all went hand in hand with success. And people will remember when Steve won his first title in 981, big to and Barry came barreling across the stage and sort of nearly knocked him over because I think he sensed, it wasn't only jubilation that his best friend had won the world championship, but also what lay ahead. And I think, that sort of maybe was the start of, it wasn't just about, isn't it great to be here? It's actually now, okay, a lot of money's coming in. We've got a lot of money to play for. So suddenly it becomes more serious, which of course it should be because it is a major global sporting
3: event. If you look closely, <laughs> <in the laughs> playlist, I think you see the pound signs in Barry's eyes <laughs> as he's running out onto the stage. The thing about that, actually, this is, this is real minutiae. This is Chris Downer level of minutiae. Oh, that's, that's what we want. That's what we want. Yes, won. exactly. Well, here it is. That final was actually played on Easter Monday. Uh, yeah. because a, a lot of people obviously think it's always been played on that uh, May Day bank holiday, but well, it certainly won't be this year. Uh, well, not, not least because that bank holiday isn't even happening, but for other oh. reasons as well. <laughs> but that year, the final was actually um, it was played over the Easter weekend, and it, it wasn't the sort of 2 o'clock and 7 o'clock thing that we have nowadays. They actually started the opening session of the final days played 11 o'clock in the morning. So it was a very different environment back then. And as you say, it all changed then with Steve, who, who did approach it. From a completely different perspective to the way anyone else had done before and of course he was to go on and absolutely dominate the 80s and for people of our age Dave who you know came into snooker at that time that's one of the most abiding memories of our childhoods is, is Steve not always winning world finals because I think as he says himself the two people remember the most are the two that he lost but it certainly set the tone for what was to follow throughout the 1980s and just when he appeared to be at his most dominant and untouchable When he won the 1989 final by 18 frames to three, it actually turned out that was the end of him winning world titles or even being in the final. That's right, yeah. In the 1980s, it wasn't so much
2: who's going to win, it was could anyone beat Steve, just as in the 90s, it was could anyone beat Stephen Hendry. It wasn't like you had a list of, like we do now, maybe eight or nine players at the start of the tournament, you think, okay, one of these are going to win. It was very much okay. If it's not Steve, who is it? If it's not Hendry, who is it? Um, but uh, speaking of um, Hendry, we had another email here. Scott McCarter said, "I had the honor Now listen to this. This is a session you want to go to. He said, "I had the honour of going to the Crucible in 2012, and he said uh, he, he was there for two days. And in one session, he watched four world champions. He watched Stephen Hendry against John Higgins and Mark Williams against Ronnie O'Sullivan." So, wow. a lot of people would, would say they're maybe even the four greatest players ever, but they're all yeah. playing in the same session. Of course, the head, he actually points out, he says, the Hendry-Higgins match wasn't the high standard. But to it see was dreadful. It was an awful yeah. match, wasn't it? But to see that quartet, I mean, that is something you don't forget.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. There was a time, uh, probably about 12 or 13 years before that, when they were not only the four best players in the world, but so far ahead of everybody else that... You never really saw a match on television that didn't involve one of those four. I remember some of the Sky tournaments around that time. They used to actually just schedule it. They'd have those four playing a different round to the rest because they wanted to show them as much as possible. But what a thing to tell people. And, of course, that's the thing about the Crucible. If you're sitting in the right seat, you can watch both Mm. matches perfectly. Uh, if If you're kind of near the middle bit and up the back, you can watch them both. There's also that frustration you have sometimes when you're on one side of the arena and you're really close to the to the other side, and you can hear cheering going on and sometimes yeah, laughter or whatever, and you know if you're on your side of the arena there might not be much happening on, and you sort of feel you're you're on the wrong side of it. But uh, yeah, what what a thing that was to see those four in one session, no matter what the standard was like. And of course, Ronnie went on to win the championship that year, and it was Hendry's last tournament.
2: That's right, yeah, retired after the quarter final. Yeah, I think the worst posi- the worst position to be in is when you're on one side of the arena. Your match is finished and you're waiting for that wall to go up. And obviously they can't just bring it up. There has to be, you know, a a suitable juncture. If someone's on a break, you can't bring it up. Uh, But it's kind of that anxious moment. What am I missing? Because, of course, you've been so focused on your own match. Suddenly there's a match going on. You want to see it. And that's, again, you don't really see that now in any other tournaments because it's all open plan. But you, you just couldn't do that at the cruise, but it's too small.
3: And you, you, you hear the clicking of the balls when you're sitting there and you're trying, it's an impossible task, but you're trying to ascertain from the clicking of the balls and how that marries up to the applause, yeah. what's going on on the other table. And of course it's, it's, it's completely impossible to do. I think now actually what they have, cause they have the screens, don't they mm, uh, yeah. in the sort of lighting rig above the table. I think sometimes they put on coverage of what's happening on the other table. So, so maybe you get a bit more of an idea of it now, but yeah, it can be frustrating and, and you're just dying for it to come up. And there's nothing like that feeling actually when, I know we have the one table stage for the semi-finals and the final, but in a funny sort of way, it almost seems more dramatic when you have that situation where play is only going on on one mm. table and the other table is, is sitting there empty. That's right,
2: and it's, for the players, it's a very sort of different feel as well. Suddenly, it's like being in a semi-final almost. You know, you've got the, the whole arena to yourself. Um, another email I will read. I like this one. is from John Johnny Cooper. He said, "I've been to the Crucible twice: 2009, 2013." My first experience was truly epic. I was lucky enough to witness the 147 Stephen Hendry made against Sean Murphy on a miserable grey midweek Sheffield morning. There's been many of those over the years. Um, he said, I couldn't, I couldn't believe my luck. Only nine maximums have been made at the Crucible up to that point. I'd only bought my ticket the day before and was lucky enough to be five rows back, sitting smack bang in line with the middle pocket. Witnessing a 147 at the Crucible is something not many people can, can claim. So I'm fortunate to be part of that group, which is absolutely right. But then he goes on to say, and this kind of is the other part of the World Championship, so that's the the matches, and this is kind of the social side. He said, my second visit was brilliant for different reasons, mainly because of the generous welcome I received from all the referees I met and socialised with in the local pub. And by the way, you'll see many of them in the, the, the graduates during the Championship. He said, after, after the evening session had finished, I remember chatting with Yamba Hass at the bar. First time Jan's ever been in a pub, that. Um, And he he said he invited me over to continue the conversation at the table who sat with with the other referees. And he said, to to cut a long story short, the night ended about 4 a.m. in a local casino. And I'm now still in touch. I'm still now in touch every now and again with Olivia Martil, who is a lovely chap. Indeed, he is. Of course, he's refereed the final. Yeah, that's the other side of it, isn't it? It's the. I think we touched on this a little bit last week. The the, the fact that you get to know this, the, the fans, you know, they're an integral part of it and it becomes a community. And, and it's it's not the sort of sport where the officials would keep themselves separate. They don't have their own special place. They, they mix with everybody.
3: And there is that whole social world <laughs> that kicks yeah. off. Uh, I, you know, when play finishes, it's usually mm. we'll say around about 10 o'clock in the evening that it finishes, but the crucible day is far from over at that stage. Oh, because yeah. Yeah. People are in hotels. They're in hotel bars. You mentioned the casino there as well. I mean, when we were young and able for it, Dave, of course, you know, basically, we'd keep going till maybe three in the morning or beyond yeah. and then be back at the Crucible the next morning. You know, you might, you'd might you play endless pool matches. I remember we talk about it a lot. Nikki Wiseman, who worked for the WPBSA, oh. and I don't think she'd ever really played pool before. She certainly didn't look like someone who was an accomplished player. She was on the pool table in the, the Novatel next to the Crucible and pulled off one of the greatest clearances no, ever seen nice. in Sheffield. Definitely, I included Howard's yeah. 69 in that. Yeah. There was the time we saw Joe Trump and Michael White when they were both kids playing on a pool table in that same hotel as well. But there is that whole world that starts after it. And for a lot of people, it's the highlight of their year. And it's as much because of the social scene that goes with it as it is for what goes on on the table. And the other thing you mentioned there, of course, that other memory about Stephen Henry's 147 in 2009. I've never really witnessed a 147 in the Crucible. I have at other tournaments, but not there when Ronnie O'Sullivan played Mark Williams in 2008 the final session I went in and sat in the press seats for the first three frames of the afternoon then I had to go back to the press room to get a report ready or whatever and of course that was the frame where the 147 was made and I rushed back round and popped my head you know around the curtain to see the last few balls but it wasn't quite the same as being in the arena for it so have you ever witnessed a 147 in the crucible?
2: No, I came close, um, well, to be, to, to be more accurate, Ronnie O'Sullivan came close um, um, to making one. He was against that, that incredible session against Hendry um, in their semifinal 1999 that Clive described it as snooker from the gods, um, and he missed the pink on 134, and I went into the photographer's booth because he was sort of on the break, and I went in, say he was on 56, 64 or something. Um, and was kind of stood like in perfect position. But, yeah, he missed the pink, so I, I didn't see it. No, like like um, our, our correspondent there, Johnny, said, you know, it's very rare. You, like, you think about, um, yes, there haven't been many Maximums, but there haven't been that many people, when you think about it, who can say, yeah, I was there. And you, you look at the, the scenes, you still see Cliff Thorburn's break. You know, those people, they have that memory to to hold on to. You know, I was there to see it. Um, a lot of those Maximums, of course, in the early days wouldn't have been live on TV either. So, mm-hmm. you know, the actual, the viewing millions wouldn't have seen them until maybe many hours later.
3: There would have been room in the photographer's booth when you went in on that Saturday morning, of course, because one of the photographers was seen walking around the crucible a couple of hours later uh, at the end of the session. And he had missed it all. He'd been he'd been ice skating. What an incredible thing thing to be doing while there's a a World semi final going on.
2: Yeah, there were a few characters uh, knocking around. There still are in the press room. It's changed now because it's more... It's less newspaper-focused because people are less newspaper-focused. There's a lot of online stuff going on. I've noticed now whenever you go in the media room at the Crucible, someone's always filming something. You're always going to be in the, in the back of for shop for, some, for something. Um, but, of course, when we started, it was very much the, the era of, of national newspapers. They each have a booth all around the press room. Um, and it was a very lively place. The players would come in, the players' dads and managers. And it was kind of a – I mean, when you think back now, I mean, I anyone got any work done because it was just full of people. But what a, what a scene to be involved in. Again, you know, like I, I didn't know any of that existed before I sort of stepped into it.
3: Yeah. And, and you'd be sitting in the press room and Stephen Henry would just sit down next to you reading the paper. You might, you might be there 10 minutes before you'd even notice and people would start chatting to him. But remember the smoke there used to be in that room because it was very yeah. much a part of snooker culture. And of course, the whole thing was sponsored by embassy who were flinging out free cigarettes to anyone who wanted them. Uh, and we all used to eat in that room as well. There was no separate place to eat, so it was just full of dirty plates and smoke and just a constant chatter. And there was a free bar as well, so there'd be shouting going on. But we loved it. It was just fantastic. It was a totally different atmosphere to to now, and it, it, it just was a different world.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. That it was kind of you, you'd always leave basically feeling ill, but you kind of you couldn't wait to get back back the next year. Um, I'll. Goes to another email. Well, uh, one of the great memories would be, of course, the well, the Hendry-White battles, but particularly 94 that went to a decided. Brian Dobson uh, was there. He said, my overriding memory was being directly behind the black, that black, of course, that Jimmy missed during the climax of the championship. He said, there was a palpable tension in the crucible when Jimmy was carefully crafting a seemingly match-winning break. And when the whirlwind cut in a red to a blind pocket using the rest finished perfect on the blue, the crowd surely sensed this was Jimmy's moment to be crowned champion of the world at long last. Everyone's heart sank when a black of its spot. The sort Jimmy would knock in 99 times out of 100, didn't even threaten the, threat the pocket. And his opponent, Stephen Hendry, being the snooker predator that he was, calmly responded to clear the table and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. He said, I left the crucible that night a broken man, as I didn't believe Jimmy would get another chance at the title, but ultimately with a snooker memory that will live me, with me forever." And again, it, 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 look, I'm sure if you're old enough, everyone everyone remembers that. But to actually be in the arena and sense that feeling, the, my memory of that is that, um, obviously, I mean, everyone thought Hendry would clear up and he did. But there was it was more muted sort of at the end. You know, it, people, even some of the Hendry fans, I think, secretly thought, oh, couldn't Jimmy just win it once?
3: It totally fizzled out. It really did. Mm. once Jimmy had missed that black, there was just a sense of inevitability about it all. And, It was almost between every shot, or certainly that's how it feels, they were cutting to a close-up of Jimmy who was shaking his head more and more as it went on and just desperately hoping he was going to get another shot. And it turned out to be... I mean, you think, how many thousands of shots must he have played in World Finals? That turned out to be the last one. He, of course, would like us to add the words, so far, because he maintained Hmm. to be back there someday. Hmm. You just can't imagine what the scenes would have been like if Jimmy had won it that night. I mean, it may actually have been... One of those things where people might have come rushing out of their seats down into the arena to Mm -hmm. hug him and embrace him. It could very much have been like that. And it was such a big thing. People talk about the 85 final. I think in terms of people remembering it now, that 94 final is right up there with it. And at almost the very moment that was going on, uh, Manchester United were winning the Premier League title. Uh, for the second year in a row, they weren't actually playing. It was Blackburn Rovers were, were playing a match, and the result of that meant United had won the league completely overshadowed by the world final, and it got much more attention the next day. So I think if you're talking about the things that people remember the most from the Crucible over the years, obviously the 85 final, and that, I think, are, are the two that uh, are probably above everything else.
2: Yeah, it, it was very different, though, to the other... There's been two other deciders, obviously 85 and, and 2002, where it beat Hendry. And, of course, what linked Dennis Taylor and Peter Ebden is they were the underdogs, effectively, in those matches, particularly Dennis, you know, against the great Steve Davis, who, you know, looked unbeatable at the time. So the great jubilation that, that Dennis had, that Ebden had, Stephen Hendry didn't have because, he, he, you know, he'd won it so many times before. So many people were pulling for Jimmy. Um, but it, like you say, I think, and I agree with what, what Brian Dobson was saying there, I think we, we all had the feeling that's probably it now for Jimmy. You know, he, he never got to a final again. He lost to Hendry in the semi year after and it was just one of those things he had his chance and unfortunately it just it just didn't happen for him um we continue ryan Sinopoulos. hopefully i pronounce your name correctly he said as a young snooker fan i was very lucky to have the world championship start a week after my birthday so getting tickets was always top of my list being the son of a single mother it all unfortunately fell on her to take me despite having absolutely zero interest in the game it was during the 2011 championships when we sat, sat watching Mark Selby versus Stephen Hendry and John Higgins versus Rory McLeod. About 40 minutes into the match, captivated by what was my first experience of watching live professional snooker, my focus was broken by the ungodly roar of my mum's snoring. I was, I, was, <laughs> I, I was 13 at the time, so I found it the most embarrassing thing on the planet, didn't speak to her for the rest of the day. He said, she passed away last year and it was something we spoke and laughed about often. She took me to the crucible a fair amount in the years since. It's still my fondest snooker memory. Had nothing to do with the excellence on the table. I think what that touches on, and again, it's we talk about the community. You do see families going. You see parents going with their children. And indeed, there's a there's a guy, John, who sits in the front row. He's been going with his parents for years and years. I mean, literally yeah, decades. Yeah. It's, it becomes part of the year, doesn't it? It's part of what families do. It's it's the the, the sort of pilgrimage every year.
3: Yeah, and that's why I think people are finding it so difficult to cope with this year, and will find it very difficult in a few weeks' time. Because the World Championship, for as long as either of us can remember anyway, has always been on at pretty much exactly the same time of year. And what a void it's going to leave. It's going to be like having a year without Christmas. Even Mm -hmm. if we do have the World Championship later in the year, it'll have a very different feel to it. I'm not saying it won't be as good a feel, but... It'll be a very different one. I'll tell you what, though, it doesn't say much about uh, the, the session that was going on that someone fell asleep, even someone who wasn't interested in snooker. I'm sure, with the greatest of respect, Rory McLeod would understand the, uh, how we might have a bit of a chuckle that it would be in one of his sessions because he, he's never claimed to be the, the fastest of players. But I'm sure snooker is a very boring game to watch if you don't understand it and mm. have no interest in it. Thankfully, those of us who do understand the nuances of it, you know, take a very different approach. And I've just got to mention something. Actually, you were talking Mm. there about deciding frame finishes, 2002. I'm sure you remember this, Dave, that there used to be a press conference the morning after with the champions, it doesn't happen anymore now. Stopped a few years after that. So you and I both went to it. You were going off to get the train. I think I was heading off somewhere else because I had a few hours before I was, I was heading home and we were talking about plans for the summer. You were going to cover some sort of pro-am or qualifier in a few weeks time. And I was going to the football world cup. (laughs) And you said to me as we parted, you said, enjoy South Korea and Japan. And I said to you, and you enjoy Pontin's. So uh, we had had our experience of the wonderful final frame finish the night before, which was just tension that I found almost unbearable. I almost had to leave the room. And then, like everyone else in the snooker world, we we went our separate ways for the summer. But uh, great to have experienced that. And you have to think we're due one of those again soon, because Mm. I know it's 35 frames, but to have only had three in all of that time and none at all now for 18 years surely it's coming soon i thought we were going to get it with williams and higgins a couple of years ago but then uh, it didn't quite happen but uh, surely the day is coming yeah you
2: absolutely i mean let's hope so because it'd be fantastic i think you've touched on something interesting there as well the when the tournament ends because it, it's such a kind of bubble being at the cruise fall and also it's not it doesn't just start on the first day there's a big build up to it i think sort of from the masters you're sort of sort of barreling into the world championship the qualifiers start they make the draw everyone's looking you know who's playing who the previews come out and then the tournament starts you're involved in it for, for 17 days we go to that horrendous party afterwards um after after of course doing our podcast um and then it's kind of suddenly over and it's actually um it's only in recent years that you and I and a couple of others have sort of rather than just sort of leaving first thing on the tuesday we've, we've sort of well had a few had a few beers let's not let's not be coy um on the tuesday just to sort of reflect on things because it's kind of over and you know it's maybe that tuesday's the first day where you actually got no, no snooker to think about um it's suddenly gone it, it seems like an absolute marathon because it is 17 days but then suddenly it's all over
3: yeah real life since i remember the first time we did that actually i looked at my watch just as we were settling down for the afternoon it was 12 o'clock and i said it was like that Sheryl Crow song we are drinking beer at noon on a Tuesday which is literally (laughs) what he's doing (laughs) the the day after the world championship of course there was a time when it ended and that was it for four months there was nothing it could even be late September before you see snooker again so nearly Mm -hmm. five months now it's a bit different now but you still do have that gap at the end of the season but how could you have something within a few weeks of the world championship ending it would just feel like such an anti-climax now of course this year because of the extraordinary Mm. circumstances we're in it might be a bit like that but by then we'll probably just be, uh, be grateful for any snooker but yeah it's a very unusual feeling isn't it that day after the world championship and it doesn't matter if you're not there even if you've been watching it at home on tv you get up in the morning and there's almost this instinctive thing who's playing today what time's it on and then you think Oh no, snooker's over now and it's back to just regular programming and, uh, and, and real life and reality resume.
2: I think that's why you need a good final. If you've had a good final, it's not so bad um, because you think, yeah, that was great to be part of that. And we've had some cracking finals in recent years. You mentioned Williams and Higgins last year, even though it wasn't close, it was a great occasion. We had Stuart mm-hmm. Bingham winning, which was, which was a terrific match. Um, if it just sort of fizzles out, then you do sort of, it's not an anticlimax because someone's still become world champion, but it's, it maybe doesn't feel. Quite the same. I'll I'll go to another email. Uh, Nick Metcalf. Nick, Nick, (laughs) I'll start again. Nick Metcalf, our old friend, um, who writes for the Metro. Very big snooker fan. Does a lot of the stories in the Metro. Um, And he has written, I loved the World Championship since I was a boy. I'll always remember the first time I went to the Crucible. So for the first day of the 1995 final between Nigel Bond and Stephen Hendry. He said, funnily enough, there was a bit of a – I didn't know this, actually. He may have told me. The one thing with Nick, he doesn't drink and we do. So it, we went to the graduate with him last year, but most of what was said had been forgotten by me anyway. But anyway, he said, funnily enough, there was a bit of a link to the sports glory days on my visit. I went with a university pal, Michael Hunter. His father, Nick, got us tickets. Nick was, oh, a BBC... yeah, Nick was a BBC sport producer, very much a pioneer – when it came to putting snook on television that's certainly true he was he was the exec producer in the early years and he actually fought to get snook on tv anyway nick says i thoroughly enjoyed my day at that special place michael could only go for the afternoon session he also had a ticket to see the james taylor quartet in manchester that evening so he gave his ticket to a delighted local outside he joined me for the evening session another clear memory i have of that day is picking up a copy of the greenham newspaper between sessions which had details of all the afternoons football at around 5pm. Those papers have completely disappeared now. So it already feels like a bygone age. I think that's one thing there that Nick has touched on. And in our our years of involvement, the way the media has changed, as he says, you know, those sort of football papers have gone. And the, the, the whole thing used to be you'd have a press conference and pretty much the journalists would get their stories for the next day. Now, anything said in a press conference is online within seconds. So it's... Someone like Hector, who Hector Nunns, who we know, who writes for a lot of papers, about to sort of change the way that they even approach it. You can't rely on press conferences anymore for the stories.
3: I remember one, I will not name him. You know who it is, but one of the senior citizens of the press room saying to me once, I just look around and everyone here, it's just all changed. They all seem to be from some website or another. And the contempt he put into the W yeah. in the word website was like nothing yeah. I've, I've ever heard before. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, that was... That was you know, that that 95 final between Hendry and Bond, had Nigel Bond won that, it would have been one of the all-time crucible sessions because Hendry was at his absolute peak at that time. Nigel was a really good player and he won the British Open the following season. But the idea that he might have beaten him over 35 frames would have seemed so unlikely. But he was actually leading after the first session, Nigel. And I think Hendry took it as such an affront to his dignity that he went Mm -hmm. out and absolutely blitzed him that night. I think he won eight of the nine frames and romped home from there. But uh, that was an unusual championship, that because at the time people thought it well, hasn't been a great championship. But you look back now, there were some great stories, the perhaps uh, the best of all with the Andy Hicks one, uh, getting to the semi-finals, mm-hmm. which was completely unexpected. And I think I'm right in saying this. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that the 147 that year by Hendry is the only one that's ever been made in the one table setup at the Crucible. So there were some great moments to remember from that year. 25 years ago now, of course
2: yeah you're right about the the maximum and uh, also any students of snooker commentary this is an aside listen to the commentary by clive everton and john spencer yes, that yes. is a perfect way of, of doing it john spencer did all the sort of play by play but he didn't overdo it clive brought all the relevant facts in absolutely perfect way to call the frame of snooker and of course uh, well from henry's perspective it was a a perfect frame of snooker um i'll read out one more email because time is pressing um So if I haven't read yours, it doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy them. We just literally don't have time, but we do appreciate them all. Um, Andy Lambly, he said, I first went to the Crucible for the Embassy World Championship in April 1987. I was at college at the time training to become a chef. Myself and a friend loved snooker and played in our local club in Grantham. We knew of a player of the same age of us doing really well, and we followed his progress. He was Stephen Hendry. I had tickets bought for me for my 18th birthday by my grandparents. They love snooker, and I was following in his footsteps for two sessions on April the 24th. So he even remembers the day. Mm. In the morning session, we got to see Stephen Hendry against Steve Longworth in the second round. In the afternoon, I got to see f- two former world champions, Terry Griffiths against Alex Higgins. Unfortunately, while we were at the Crucible, our car was broken into, and oh, most wow. of the stuff, yeah, most of the stuff I received as birthday presents was stolen. This did not, however, st- stop us going again, and I've been attending ever since. So that, that story took a, a bit of a disappointing turn, but uh, glad it didn't put you off going. Yeah, I, I guess th- that's maybe quite a common thing. We, we hear about, oh, obviously, Henry's an example, uh, players who as boys got tables uh, for birthday or Christmas presents. And now, later on, people getting tickets uh, as birthday presents. And just sort of emphasising that family feel that I'm not sure you necessarily get another tournaments um and i think that is to do with the, the crucible's heritage it's the one venue everyone knows when you say the crucible to a snooker fan they know exactly what you what you're talking about
3: Yeah, that 87 championship, actually, that was the first one I really watched. I I remember Dennis in 85, but I wasn't really into it then. And I watched a bit of it in 86, but didn't really understand it. But I remember sitting down on Saturday morning, 25 past 10, Easter Saturday, to watch Mm -hmm. the start of Joe Johnson against Eugene Hughes and thinking this was the biggest thing that had ever happened in the world. And at that time, the World Championship was enormous. You mentioned that Griffiths-Higgins match. The thing I remember about that is that was being shown on grandstand and they were showing the other match on BBC two at the same time. So you, you had wow. snooker on both channels. And I mean, that just shows you what a different time it was.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the I remember the 86 championship because I wrote about this today on, on the Wilson website. Um, I, I made a very crude scrapbook um, as the tournament was going on. I got into it and just, I just cut faces out of papers and, 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 um, Every player, well, not every player, a, a select group of players had their own page. And, of course, I didn't have a page with Joe Johnson because I just thought, A, I'd never heard of him, but B, you know, he, he can't possibly win it. Of course, he did win it, and that was the scrapbook ruined. I'm, I'm not, I am not, I don't hold it against Joe because, obviously, you know, I'm a friend of his now. But, um, yeah, it was, like I said, maybe a different time. Even I think the Radio Times, actually, at that year... Had had snooker players on the front cover.
3: That's right, they uh, did. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, and that maybe is what started that. Maybe that's where I first saw it. Just literally, maybe that was just lying around at home or something. I don't know, but I, I, have, I have a clear memory of that. Um, as we sort of begin to wrap up uh, this hundredth hundredth episode, um, there come a point. I think we all know this when it will no longer be at the Crucible. Uh, at the moment, it's they've got the contract with Sheffield until twenty twenty seven. But eventually it will move away, and I'm sure the World Championship will be a success somewhere else, but it won't be the same, will it?
3: It won't feel remotely the same. I I really hope that day is a long way off. I think you you look at some of the events in China, and you think they're played in venues that aren't really suitable for snooker, and we've talked before about the approach they take to ticketing and the rest of it, and it just doesn't have the same atmosphere to it at all. So I don't know. I I still think it'll be a great event, but I I don't know if it will feel the same, to be honest if it's not at the Crucible, because it does have such a unique feel to it. The other thing that concerns me is that, at some points, and it could happen any time, they decide to cut back on the number of frames, and I I wouldn't be doing that at all, certainly not to any great degree, but could you see a time in the future, maybe, where we're talking best of 11 in the first round, and perhaps continuing that and maybe only building gradually for the later rounds. I I really, really hope not, because it wouldn't seem the same. And, you know, people have said, Ronnie O'Sullivan being one of them, oh, this championship should only last one week. It's too long for a tournament. It does go on a long time. And you do get to maybe that second Thursday when the semi-finals are starting and you're thinking, I'm almost getting a bit tired of this now. But then, of course, as we said, the moment it's over, there's this huge void. And you think that's when you you realise that you wouldn't want it to be any shorter, As you have said before, Dave, the challenge, the test that a player has to come through to win the World Championship has been basically the same for about 40 years now. And I would hate to see that devalued at any time. And I think that would be a greater risk than moving away from the venue. But uh, listen, whatever it happens, the memories will take away from that place. And you and I have been lucky to spend so much time there. And as you say, a lot of the people who go there have been going there year after year for a very long time. But if 20 years from now we're all... Looking back on it all, what an incredible array of memories in just that one small room in Sheffield that could very easily never have been a snooker venue if Carol Watterson hadn't gone to a play there all those years ago.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you're knocking against open door with me in terms of the format. Yeah, I think the fact that it's been that way. I mean, if you go back to 1980, I think it was the first year it was Best of 35 final. Cliff Thorburn beat Alex Siggins. And basically, with a few tweaks here and there, the format has been the same pretty much ever since. And that means that everyone who wins it has gone through the same challenge as all the other winners. And that, that gives it credibility. The UK Championship, I'm afraid, has been downgraded. It just has. It's been the frames have been cut. You know, even the semi finals are best of eleven. So it's not the same tournament as it used to be. It doesn't mean it's not a great tournament, but it's not the same as it used to be. But the World Championship um has had that consistency, the same venue, the same format. Of course Barry Hearn actually ironically, a lot of people look at Barry as this sort of ultra commercial guy, which of course he is, but He's got an emotional connection. I mentioned the the final with Davis and all those years he spent there. And he said, I don't want it on my gravestone. I'm the man who took snooker from the crucible. Problem is, even Barry can't live forever. And there's going to come a point where he's no longer running snooker. And whoever is running it will no doubt be a very successful commercial person who will look at it and say, why are we playing the World Championship in an arena with a 1,000 seats where we could sell potentially three times as many somewhere else? That day, I'm sure he's going to come at some point – but as you say, until it does, let's continue to celebrate the Crucible. We're not going to be there in April. Hopefully, we will be there later in the year. It will feel strange, but I don't think that matters as long as the World Championship is played. Um, Michael, thank you for your contributions. I just want to also, oh, by, by the way, before we finish, Front Row Chris, who we mentioned last oh, week, yeah.
3: um, oh, yeah. who you, you claim was a driving instructor, he got in touch to say he isn't. Yeah, well, I'll stand over part of the story. What I said basically was just talking about what a close-knit community snooker is and that Nick Johnson, who worked at the Crucible for many years as one of the journalists and who's from the area, actually, that he, uh, he, he certainly told me that one of those people that we're familiar with who sit in the front row every year, uh taught him to drive sorry chris we know it wasn't you now and as you pointed out if you were able to charge 40 pounds an hour you'd still be buying front row seats every year so um we'll ask nick when we see him next uh, who exactly it was but it was definitely definitely one of those guys
2: fair enough okay well uh thanks to everyone who emailed in and you can continue to email in if you've got any suggestions for things we want to talk about because we're kind of locked down and this is going to continue, I guess, for a few weeks, maybe months yet. So we're planning to hopefully do a podcast every week. So if you want to email in with any thoughts and comments, questions, suggestions, whatever, the address is podcast at mail.com. That's podcast at mail.com. Uh, and I just want to say, as this is the 100th episode, um, big thank you to everyone who's listened, everyone who's reviewed the podcast, uh, which you can do on Apple Podcasts and various other places. And, of course, everyone who's contributed, everyone who's been on, we've had... Uh, like Michael and and Phil and Neil and Alan and and quite a few other regular contributors, all the guests we've had on. Um, I plan to continue doing it. I never thought we'd get to 100, um, but here we are. And uh, let's, well, here's to the next 100, I guess.
3: And let's hope that we're out of this lockdown by the time we reach 200. Absolutely, because
2: uh, the last thing to say maybe is um, we're still persevering with Skype. A few people suggested other things which I've looked into, but at the moment we're persevering with Skype. I know it's not perfect, but I guess it's better than nothing. And uh, as I say, here's to the next 200. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We will be back next week.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry?
0: Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
1: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.